Trigger warning, this podcast contains discussions about eating disorders and alcohol addiction, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. listeners and welcome to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up to their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. As always, I'm your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. My special guest for this episode, listeners, is Sam Thomas. Sam is a mental health advocate, vent champion, and someone who has supported vent on social media and through the articles he has written for the platform about his alcohol addiction, eating disorder, and other mental health issues or conditions he lives with. Addiction, bulimia, identity, exercise, and more are all on the menu for this pod. This is how our conversation went. Sam, welcome to the Just Checking In Pod, mate. You've been such a big supporter of Vent in these last three years since I started it. I'm delighted to finally have you on. How are you? How is your recovery going? I know it's a bit weird to be going through a recovery like this during during lockdown, but you know, how are you and how are you getting on, pal? Well, I think I've coped surprisingly well, actually. Not even coped, but managed, I think, surprisingly well during the lockdown. Um, like a lot of people, you know, I was a bit nervous to begin with because, of course, my recovery has very much been built around you know, along the lines of sort of day-to-day routines and structures and everything else, which we'll come on to shortly, I would expect. But yeah, all that went completely out the window to begin with. But, you know, I've, I've learned that, you know, to sort of adapt during the lockdown, be a lot more flexible and really sort of find different ways of being able to sort of manage using the same sort of coping mechanisms, but just adapting. Brilliant. We've got a lot to get through. And, you know, you've been through such a such an amazing journey and you've you've inspired so many people through your work. Shall we shall we just get started? There's so much to talk about in your journey, Sam. So let's dive straight into it. So first off, just talk to me about your early life, your childhood, your teenage years and and whether looking back, were there any sort of early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? You know, who's the Sam we meet here? I mean, it feels like many lifetimes ago now. Um, I feel like I've lived several lives for that reason, because I think I've experienced several different sort of mental health related issues. But going back to when I was growing up, you know, I grew up in Southport, which is uh, near to Preston, not far from Liverpool. The only things that stand out for me for childhood was just the amount of instability in the respect that my mother split from my dad when I was two, so I never knew him, didn't have any memories of him for that reason. She had an affair, ran away up north with the rest of the family started a new life in Southport. We moved from place to place to place. We never stayed anywhere for very long. Uh, we pretty much lived out of boxes, to be honest, you know, because it was just, we never stayed long enough to unpack. So it was a lot of instability, a lot of confusion, I think. And that sort of carried, I, I remember sort of my auntie more than my mother because she, you know, she used to look after me while my mother went to work. So like I say, there's a lot of confusion. And I think that sort of probably had more of an impact on me um, than I realised until much later on in life. But also, you know, I was really badly bullied at school because, you know, I stood out in all sorts of different ways. You know, I had long hair, for instance, which really was not cool. Kind of looked like a bit like a beetle, really, um, with a mullet-like hair. You know, I looked and sounded very effeminate because, you know, I, even though I didn't realise I was gay at the time, that was often assumed. So all sorts of names were called along those lines of, you know, the gay slurs that we've heard, probably certainly back in the days that perhaps you and I were at school. 
So it was all kinds of different things I experienced, and the bullying did get really bad, which I know we'll probably come on to short, you know, shortly when we talk about eating disorders because of connection there. So yeah, so there was a lot of chaos, really, and I think that sort of I absorbed all that chaos. I think it's safe to say. Before we talk about the bullying and and your your sort of kind of your adult men- mental health journey, Sam, just on on the on the fact that you said that your mum and dad were you know had split up and you didn't really know your dad. What was it like, first of all, kind of growing up without that male father figure? Perhaps you know I don't I don't know if your mum remarried or if she she had sort of you know you know new boyfriends etc. And w- what was that like getting used to? And also what was the relationship like with your mum you know then and now did it did it did it sort of strengthen that you know have you got a sort of greater bond with your mum because because of that absence of a of a, of a father figure in your life well okay uh, when I did have a stepdad technically but you know it's kind of a um, more of a very male dominant figure really than a dad-like figure if that makes sense and he was somebody that was around if you like but you know I didn't really sort of get along with that well there was no sort of father to son type relationship or anything like that but then equally, it wasn't really the case with my mother because she was never maternal, she was never nurturing, and that was because of her mother who died when she was 13. Um, and my mother's mother, you know, she had alcohol dependency issues, she had mental health issues, she was manic depressive or bipolar as we know it now, she stayed in the asylums. That was my mother's mother. So you can imagine the chaos that she must have absorbed and that sort of, in a way, got passed on to me. I think once it was called as transactional trauma, the idea that one family's generation and their issues get passed on to the next. So I think there was quite a lot of that, a lot of absence, really, because, you know, my dad was not around, my stepdad was this sort of figure, like I say, that was around. The same for my mother, to some extent. But then again, she used to work all the hours under the sun. You know, she worked in a nursing home in a, in a laundry, so, you know, obviously it didn't pay very much. So I think she had her reasons, but it was just like I say, I think she was very sort of very unstable in herself, I think. So I think there was a lot of that, like I say, in all of us in the family. You've been incredibly open about your mental health journey, Sam. And if I'm correct in saying you currently live with um, an alcohol addiction, which you're recovering from really well. Um, You live with an eating disorder uh, called bulimia. Um, You've been also diagnosed with emotionally unstable personality disorder. And you've also suffered from depression in the past. Let's navigate this journey if we can. So which one of those do you think came first and, and how did they manifest themselves? You know, what can you sort of um, define uh, as well for the listeners who perhaps might not be uh, aware of what those what those individual um, definitions mean? And when were you diagnosed for each one so the listeners have a better idea of the journey as well? Uh, what came first? That's a good question. Um, I think in terms of diagnosed, it was certainly would be bulimia because, you know, going back to what I was saying a minute ago about being bullied at school you know I used to run out of lessons or avoid lessons entirely uh, to avoid the bullies and you know it was a constant thing throughout high school so I used to sort of hide in the boys toilets because it was the only place where I knew I wouldn't be found and it was there where I used to binge on the contents of my lunchbox of sweets and crisps and whatever and you know that sort of was a comfort thing you know what I mean I think we all do a bit of that but because of the tension, the anxiety that was building up within me, I used to always have that nausea feeling as well as that sort of fullness. So what I used to do is purge. So in other words, make myself sick. So and that sort of gave the sense of relief of all of that build up of tension, anxiety, stress, all of it. And that became my coping mechanism from the age of about 13 up until about the age of 21. So technically that came first. And of course, that really was... Um, a major issue for me right throughout my teens um, <clears throat> because of the bullying and the bulimia 
Um, it impacted on my grades at school. You know, I was expected to get top in tests, you know, top GCSE grades. You know, to go on to college, uni, never happened. Um, so it really did have impact in all sorts of different ways. And um, so that came first. Um, in terms of what came second, I guess to some degree, the alcohol addiction. But the interesting thing is I didn't drink at all until I was 24. Um, drank twice when I was in Liverpool, around about the age of 17. Decided I hated it. My first boyfriend didn't drink, so I didn't drink. So that sort of came much later. And I often think, in a way, I sort of swapped bulimia for alcohol. Maybe not overnight, but generally over a period of time. So I think that kind of came second. But then, of course, much later on, um, emotionally unstable personality disorder crept up. You know, once I'd been admitted to uh, psychiatric hospitals, not once, but twice. Um, and then I got diagnosed. Um, so that probably was underlying all the way through, but just not picked up on so much later on, if that makes sense. So what came first? It's a, it's a bit like the chicken and the egg scenario, isn't it, really? Um, so, but in terms of order of when things came up, that's probably mostly it, really. And of course, depression throughout different points. There's no question of saying that, you know, I've experienced depression off and on since, you know, as a child. Mm -hmm. In the first event article you wrote in January 2019, Sam, you said that a traumatic event in 2015 was the trigger for you to self-medicate with alcohol and you, you unfortunately became addicted to it. If you could, just tell me a bit about that event and then the aftermath of it regarding your alcohol addiction and your mental health. Well, I've always got this theory that damaged people attract other damaged people. And, um, and of course, that has been reflected in probably all of my relationships in terms of romantic relationships. So... Um, the kind of the event without going into all the specifics and all the details, it was basically me with, you know, another guy who was actually a few years younger than me. And um, he was going through a lot. I was going through a lot historically and sort of currently. And it just sort of became quite toxic, really, and abusive. So it's the only simplest and easiest way I can explain it. You know, he had issues with drugs, totally out of my depth, no history at all whatsoever with drugs, although obviously with alcohol, which is a drug. And... Um, sort of one thing became, you know, led to the next and it just got out of hand. It's the only way I can simply explain it. Um, one night I ended up having to go to A&E &E, and that was it. So that was kind of essentially the abusive relationship, the trauma, which I was referring to. As you can imagine, there's a lot more to it, which won't go into detail in this interview. But, you know, it's something I'm building up to, to talking about a bit more openly, going through that with therapy at the moment. So I feel a lot more comfortable talking about the you know, the, the, the very, the, you know, in a, talking about it in a nutshell, if that makes sense, in brief. But yeah, it's one of those things that I'm sort of realising as time goes on that that probably had a lot to do with it. But then I think a lot of other stuff had a lot to do with it as well. So often I used to think that it was that that probably, you know, pushed me over the edge, if you like, triggered me. But actually, I think it probably goes far, far back in my history to childhood, teenage years, as I've just mentioned. So I think trauma has this funny way of, particularly unresolved trauma, sort of leading to other subsequent traumas, if you see what I mean. So it's almost like a chain reaction, sort of a domino effect. So I think that probably has been sort of the case with my relationships, really. They've often been an outlet, if you like, to sort of escape, um, sort of find myself, my identity, and um, all of those things, really. Mm. We'll talk a bit about your... Um your journey as a, as a gay man as well later on in the pod Sam but you said in the article in this first one that you were able to function pretty highly alongside your alcohol addiction you know how did you how did you manage trying to keep this a secret from your friends and, and trying to live an in inverted commas a normal life and this is something a lot of other alcoholics are able to do from your experience 
Well, firstly, I didn't keep it a secret. That's the ironic thing of all of this. Um, it was quite well known. But the thing was, when I say, I mean, I've, said, I've used this term functioning sort of alcoholic or alcohol dependent person. And I was very much that because, you know, I did drink wine, um, not necessarily during the daytime, but certainly at night. And I used to famously work till three, four, five in the morning, go to bed for a few hours and wake up and repeat the cycle. Quite literally, you know, I used to live for work. But the problem was because, you know, the, the, the not so much the sheer volume in short bursts of time that I was drinking, sort of the volume over extended periods of time. So throughout the period of the day and evening, you know, I was actually drinking anywhere up to sort of three bottles of wine, which, you know, is quite a lot to say the least. So but because I was doing that for probably the course of about two years, sort of without any breaks, you know, obviously it builds up in your system, your body sort of learns or your brain more specifically learns to function uh, that way and that's what dependency means if you think about it you know if you go to a pub and someone says um you know i can drink x amount of beers or whatever and it, i'm still standing at the end of the night then that kind of indicates not they've just got tolerance but they're dependent to some degree if that makes does that make sense so you know what i mean so it's one of those things i think a lot of people don't realize dependency is actually very easily done surprisingly easily done and often it's when you stop is when people realize all of a sudden they've got a problem and of course I had very horrendous withdrawal symptoms which can range you know it's both physical and psychological it was very confusing to me at the time this was probably about four years ago now and I couldn't understand why I was feeling very physically unwell and psychologically losing the plot all at the same time with weird nightmares and sort of tripping out quite literally you know the same sort of experience you pay drug dealers for you know what I mean it's sort of quite weird sort of and I couldn't understand I thought maybe I've got some obscure bug that I've picked up abroad or something you know what I mean and eventually, over six months of having several of these episodes, it was actually confirmed um, in A&E that, you know, I was alcohol dependent and actually I needed a detox. And um, my friend was there with me and we were quite stunned, it's like, really. And of course, the first advice I said, it's really important, you've got to keep drinking, which seems the most strangest medical advice in the whole history of medical advice. Do you know what I mean? You've got to keep drinking. But the idea is that, you know, basically it stops you going into that withdrawal before you go into a proper medically assisted detox, which is a very specific procedure, which can be quite risky actually. And I've experienced that four times now. So, so I've come a bit of an expert in detoxes and withdrawal and dependency and all of that. But um, it is quite a, it was quite an eye opener for me and other people around me, because of course we all realized that I was drinking. It wasn't even that I tried to keep it a secret, like I say. <clears throat> but actually it's quite funny to me when I look at like Facebook memories, for instance, you know, from three, four, five, six, seven, eight years ago, for instance, you know, every single picture with me, uh, there's a glass of wine in it. So it wasn't even, like I say, it's very obvious to people that I was drinking, but not obvious the fact that I was dependent. You talked there about um, your kind of ne- the stuff you talked about in your next events article, where you talked about kind of becoming self-aware of your addiction and and checking yourself into rehab or, or your local substance misuse service if you want to be technical about it. You also talk about you also mentioned there about some really severe symptoms of alcohol withdrawal. You know, you had full body shakes um, to the extent where you were unable to stand or walk. You had fever-like symptoms, nausea, sickness, delusional thoughts, short-term memory loss, agitation, insomnia, disturbing nightmares, and like you said, and I'm sure many, many others. You know, what was what was that like for you, and how did you get through this period of your life? You know, you said you in the article you felt like drinking was was the only way to ease these symptoms. Um, such was the pain you were in. Well, it was. Yeah, it exactly was. I mean, that took me a long while to get around in my head because, you know, for a while I was told it's really important to keep, got to keep drinking. 
And I used to do the complete opposite, thinking it just seems strange to have to keep drinking to get over all these symptoms. But unfortunately, I learned the very hard way that the only way to get rid of those symptoms is to drink. So like I say, I was very sort of just completely oblivious to all of this, to be honest, four years ago. I didn't know anything about alcohol dependency in a, at all, really. Um, and going back to the point about going to rehab, well, I did actually, to my credit, did actually refer myself to the Drug and Alcohol Service here in Brighton fairly early on after I'd you know, been to that particular A&E visit, which I think was the third time before I became sort of diagnosed, as it were. And, um, you know, I did go to an inpatient sort of detox facility, which is kind of like rehab, um, inverted commas. And um, I did 10 days there, absolutely hated it. Um, because, you know, I just wasn't ready for it, in fact, to be honest. I could, you know, it was quite strange for me to sort of be mixing with other people who are alcohol dependent as well as heroin addicts. And I almost had no issue with any of that. I actually found it really interesting, very educational. I just wasn't at that place where I could sort of accept or, you know, just that really, just accept that 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 was me. That was the situation I was in at that time. So I did it all quite prematurely in a way. Um, and of course, I did relapse sort of almost immediately within a matter of days um, of that first detox. And, you know, that's when all hell sort of broke loose, really, because then, of course, hardly anybody knew that I did that detox for one. The people that did know were very disappointed and sort of quite critical in some ways. But, you know, it, trying to, you know, it would try to do that with all the best intentions, if you like, but obviously, nevertheless, having sort of a negative impact on me. Yeah, so I did go through uh, three sort of detoxes and had the most recent detox in November of last year which the big difference with that is that I wanted that detox and I was asking for it. And, and that actually put a, a lot of demands really to get that detox because of the way services are, particularly drug and alcohol services. I know we complain about how mental health services are, but drug and alcohol services, blimey, it's just so much further down the road. The cuts and austerity measures and the rest of it. So, so that detox, you know, worked, if you like, um, because, you know, obviously I've been able to keep sober since you know, about eight months ago now. So, I've learned a lot and I think the reality is I think for people who are alcohol dependent they do have to go through several detoxes it's not like a one-stop shop quick detox and that's it sort of abstinence for life sober for life you know what I mean it's, it's one of those things that I have to go through several times and kind of make all the mistakes really of the do's and don'ts and of course each person is very different you know some people drink very much in isolation a lot of times I think people do drink in isolation when they're alcohol dependent but some people might have a social element to it so they might have to sort of you know sort of uh sort of avoid sort of triggers where they might end up being in environments where they're drinking for instance so i think for me it was just kind of the emotional triggers kind of all the traumas really quite a bit of a backlog to get through if you like in terms of traumas so it's kind of dealing with things in a very particular way in a very particular order but it all did begin with a detox and then that followed is the trauma therapy that i'm going through now so yeah so it's kind of like i said i've been around the block several times i think safe to say with detoxes and relapses and and hopefully, knowing what I know now, um, I can sort of manage to keep that on track um, ongoing. Before we talk about the kind of later part of your um, recovery journey, Sam, and the, and the detoxes that you mentioned there, you mentioned a wonderful woman and friend that that helped you in that moment. And, you know, I, I'm certainly a big, big fan of Claire. Uh, and for people in the mental health community listening to this, they will know Claire because she is just one of the most supportive and kindest people on social media when any of us are struggling. And I hope to get her on the pod one day after you, Sam. Just tell me a bit about how Claire helped you in that moment in your life and your relationship now. And, and also, 
why it's important for anyone who lives with mental health issues or addictions to have a friend like Claire. You know, what would you what would you say to her if she was listening? And I'm sure she is. <laughs> I'm sure she will be. Um, well, Claire, I mean, it's a bit odd, actually, because I think I got to know her in the same way that a lot of people got to know her via Twitter. And I think when I was in, actually, in mental hospital, psychiatric hospital, um, on the second time, I was going through quite a lot in a big way. Um, I was sort of overspilling, if you like, a little bit on Twitter. Um, and, you know, we got in contact that way. And I think just over time, she became, created a role for herself, if you like, that, you know, that sort of was part sort of supporter, but mostly sort of advocate. So she did act on my behalf in certain instances where it really was necessary for someone to act on my behalf. Um, and what I've learned from my experience with Claire, you know, you do get places when you've got an advocate because, you know, if you kind of represent yourself, they kind of think, oh, you've got capacity and you know what you're talking about, so you, you can't possibly need the help sort of scenario. And I think a lot of people experience that in the mental health sort of world, you know, who are going through sort of all sorts of mental health related issues. So I think actually with Claire, I think her role has very much been that really sort of, like I say, part support, but mostly sort of advocate just to sort of make things happen um, because there are times when things don't really happen until you have to push for it, like the detox that I just mentioned. You know, I had to sort of, you know, I think almost sort of doing one-man protest in hospital in any department just to get, you know, the detox. I said, well, we'll be here the next night, the night after that, if we're not careful. So, you know, so there are instances like that that, you know, and of course, you know, I've happened in um, psychiatric hospital twice in a, as a voluntary capacity. I have been sectioned by the police once. But, you know, I think without Claire, you know, the chances are I could have ended up being sectioned potentially or, or worse scenarios other than that. So I think, you know, Claire is playing a, a life-saving role, quite literally, uh, not just for me, but for lots of people. Because, you know, unfortunately, you know, services aren't as great as they could be. They're not necessarily terrible, but, you know, there are definitely issues that I think we all can relate with and identify with when we're trying to access the support we need. Um, so I think the, the role of advocate that, like I say, Claire plays is very fundamental, very key, and um, she's very highly effective at it, I think it's safe to say. You got through that 10 days of detox and managed to merge out the other side, you know, hopefully a very a healthier person. What, First of all, what did you learn in those 10 days of detox as an inpatient about yourself, your mental health, and your addiction? And also, after these few months of recovery, you began to learn more and more about your addiction and your mental health. You wrote an article about this on Vent last year in August about the need for people with dual diagnoses like yourself needing dual services. Just tell me what you meant by that and expand on that idea a little bit more for the listeners so they get an idea about this part of your journey and also how people kind of like yourself with with these dual diagnoses um, and also how you know you being in a detox service alongside people with you know addictions such as heroin is a lot different in terms of the, 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 the treatment and the provision that you both need. Um, I think going back to the first point of your question, if I remember, um, yes, detox, yes, well, funny enough, I'm writing a book about it because I've learned so much. Um, I, I wouldn't know where to begin, really, because, you know, I have to say it's just a completely different territory in some ways to what I was used to, particularly because I've worked in ink stores for a very long time, and then suddenly found myself in this sort of uh, sort of addiction world, as it were, and I knew nothing to begin with, and still feel like I know nothing, but actually I've learned a heck of a lot. Um, and, you know... I think with detox is like I said earlier, you know, it can be it's more than a one-stop shop. You know, people have to go through that process. And I think the thing that sort of always sort of bothers me is two things really. One is the fact that you know often people get detoxes, but not the rehab. If you get the difference, so detox is like, kind of like the medical part and the the 
rehab is the aftercare. So, you know, famously people have known about AA and NA and DA, all the A's, anything ending anonymous, which is the fellowships, the 12 step programs, the smart recovery. So there is sort of quite a lot out there in the community, but obviously I kind of still argue that, you know, because of where drug and alcohol services are very unpopular to fund, the first to be chopped in any funding cuts and austerity measures, you know, unfortunately it's kind of like the bare bones really of what you could get in terms of treatment with drug and alcohol services these days. So I think, you know, I'm very passionate about that. And the second part is the whole thing we just mentioned about dual diagnosis. Now, a lot of people haven't got a clue what dual diagnosis actually means. I think it literally means you have two diagnoses. But actually what it means is um, you have a mental health related problem and a substance misuse problem or addiction. And um, with me, I think because it was fairly sort of well, it was identified and diagnosed fairly early on, had emotional and stable personality disorder, potentially with PTSD as well. Um, you know, that is the dual diagnosis. So the EUPD, which you can never say right, EUPD, and uh, obviously alcohol uh, addiction. So the idea is that if you treat one and not the other, you know, I think in reality, you know, if you were to detox, for instance, then you'll become very vulnerable to your emotional well-being, uh, distress even, and trauma and everything else that sort of pushes you over the edge and triggers you and before you know you're back in drinking again. So the idea is that a dual approach for dual diagnosis sort of means that you're not just treating one and not the other, but treating both alongside one another to give it the best possible chance of recovery. Um, but obviously, that sounds all rather simple and quite straightforward on the face of it, but in reality, it's a lot harder than that. And of course, the other problem is that I've been saying quite a lot, you know, is that drug and alcohol services and mental health services tend to sort of operate quite differently and separately from one another. Um, so a lot of people might think drug and alcohol becomes is the remit of mental health services, for instance, which it's not. So therefore you know it can feel like you know drug and alcohol services sits on one side of the fence mental health services sit on the other side of the fence and they don't really talk to each other and they don't really work with one another so it can be sort of quite difficult to sort of coordinate that sort of um treatment in a way that sort of gives like I say recovery the best possible chance it's kind of to split that atom if you like in terms of recovery um so i think for a lot of people it can it's not really one more than the other it's sort of both in equal measures your latest article on Vent is my absolute favourite, Sam, and I love the title you used for it, as I think it's such a universal message you need to deliver to the masses, which is called um, Life Begins at Sober. So you're six months sober now, if I'm correct, and without getting ahead of ourselves, you're progressing and hopefully thriving in your life. Just tell me a bit about this article and also how you reflect on the last five years. You know, Do you feel like a completely different person that's speaking to me now as opposed to the Sam in 2015 or the, or the Sam when, um, who was getting bullied in school? I feel like a different person than I was last week at the moment. <laughs> um, uh, back to the um, back to the article. Yeah, I mean, it's I've written that when I was six months sober, so I'm eight months sober now. But because of lockdown, it feels like a whole lot longer than that, to be honest. Um, but you know, I thought it was quite important to write that article actually because you know, partly to communicate really that you know I was six months sober and I was quite surprised I even got to that point with my history of relapses as well and everything else. I think everyone else is quite surprised as well. But of course, I've learned so much more. And of course, during the lockdown as well, that, you know, I've often spoken to people on a literally a daily basis who, you know, are going through that right now, you know, who have relapsed during that period or have just started to realise they've got an issue for the first time. In fact, always had a bit of a drinking problem, but never realised it is alcohol dependency. So I think it's really important to sort of talk about these issues, because I think in some ways we're very sort of accepting about talking about mental health issues 
Um, but we don't talk about addiction quite in the same way, so openly as mental health, you know, and I think there's still, it's almost like a bit further down the track, as it were. So I kind of feel that it's quite important for me to focus on that at the moment with all the work that I do, because partly because that's obviously where I'm at and that's where I'm in my recovery, that's where my life is and that's the areas that I've become sort of quite passionate and interested in now. But also because I recognise that, you know, there is still quite a lot of stigma, a lot of secrecy, a lot of shame, really, all the S's, that, you know, still attached to addiction. And so I think, I think for me it's actually sort of saying really that there is hope and, you know, and actually you can sort of recover from it, even in the most dire sort of set of circumstances that I was in, you know, it was still possible because um, it did impact on me in every department, it felt like, in the end, um, over the past few years. Have I changed in the past five years? I think probably, I don't think I've changed, but I think I've evolved, I like to think. And I do think, actually, you know, I do think, you know, a lot more, so it's a bit weird because I was saying the other day, actually, that, you know, when I was drinking, because essentially I was probably alcohol dependent for up to sort of seven years or at least drinking for seven years. So I'm not alcohol dependent for that amount of time necessarily. But it's almost like when you sort of come out of that sort of detox and become sober, which can feel like an alien concept, I should say. But when you sort of come into that sort of um, sobriety for the first time for an extended sort of period, it's almost like your eyes are just wide opened again and you start noticing things that you didn't notice before and your brain is sort of, you feel emotions, for instance, you know, you feel a lot more creative, you, you know, feel a lot more energy to do things. So you do feel quite a different person because of the, the reality of being alcohol dependent versus being sober, if you know what I mean. So it sort of, you do sort of come to life again, really. So that is the idea of the title, you know, life begins at sober, because, you know, there is something you can't really explain that only other people who've been in that position kind of know, if you know what I mean. It's like, you know, someone was saying the other day that their senses all became alive again you know, smell and taste and feel, feeling things. And, you know, it's kind of quite weird, really. You sort of become sort of emotionally, sort of mentally sort of cut off from the world in the time that you're in, you know, in that addictive sort of mindset. So, yeah, I don't know if that makes sense, but I, it's sort of something that I'm just sort of figuring out at the moment, really. I think it's safe to say. Before we end this topic, Sam, I just wanted to quickly talk about your identity as a gay man alongside your mental health issues. So if you could just tell me a bit about your coming out story and also when you first developed feelings for other men. Well, I don't really have a coming out story. So I think I just told people, you do realise I'm gay, don't you? And they were like, yeah. <laughs> that was it. So there's nothing. <laughs> no, I was writing, uh, funny enough, I was writing about that for my book not that long ago. And I thought, actually, I've probably got the most unexciting sort of coming out story. That's despite the fact that I was really badly bullied. So it was kind of like one of those things that, you know, something quite epic and it really wasn't. Um, and in fact, actually, I, I remember that the first thing my mother said is, I hope you're not moving in with any men. So it was kind of one of those things where I think everybody kind of knew, to be fair. So, and it wasn't like I was the most screaming sort of queen or anything. It was just very, I think, where I grew up, you know, if you stood out, you know, if you were different, you just stood out because, you know, everyone else was so focused on trying to blend in. So there isn't really anything exciting to say coming out. But in terms of um, knowing that I was gay, I kind of realised probably when I was a child, but to be honest, and um, I kind of didn't necessarily identify as being gay because, of course, that was not in my vocabulary till much later on. But I think those early sort of signs and sort of feelings and, towards sort of admiration for men or fancying men, you know, sort of probably 9, 10, 11, say, for argument's sake. So I think probably it was always there, really. So I think for me, it, it never felt like a great big deal in the way that it ought to, because I think I've always been very much myself, I think, in the sense that, you know, I think if I feel a certain way, I think a certain way, that, that, that's just how I am. So it wasn't something that was concealed or hidden or tucked away outside or anything like that. Um, and like I say, I think when I realised the connection between sort of fancy men and that being gay, and what that word actually meant, properly meant, 
actually meant. You know what I mean? I kind of sort of said to people quite early on, and it just so happened that the, the majority of my friends, you know, when I was 16, I came out, you know, were mostly female anyway, so probably not so much an issue. And, you know, within that social social circle, there's another person that came out gay, so there's two of us. And, of course, we did fancy each other but hated each other at the same time. So there was kind of one of those sort of situations where it never really was a big deal when it came to it. But, you know, despite the fact that I was really badly bullied throughout high school for it, I think it easy, but in the end, it sort of wasn't as difficult as perhaps it could have been. And in the gay community, have you felt supported for your mental health? Do you think mental health is spoken about enough? And also, um, is, is addiction some, a problem in the gay community? And is it spoken about enough, do you think? I think the gay community are always very supportive. And I think, you know, very, in the very, very early days, when I started talking about men with eating disorders, for instance, and that's like 15 years ago, which is a totally different time period then, you know, it was the gay community, you know, the, the gay media, like Gay Times and Attitude, for instance, that were very supportive of the work I was doing then with a campaign that I was doing called Men Gay Disorders 2. That's always been, they've always been very supportive. And I think, you know, the gay community, or the LGBT community, I should say, is very open to a lot of these sorts of issues that I'm dealing with, really. And I think, you know, it just seems particularly prevalent within that community, both, you know, eating disorders and addiction. Yeah, I mean, addiction is a big issue, I think, within the LGBT community, certainly. I think nearly every single person I know of in Brighton has probably had, who is gay um has had some sort of addiction issue at some point and in fact it's quite weird for me because you know the years that i should have been sort of drinking and doing drugs and everything else was the years when i absolutely was doing none of that you know in my late teens early 20s like i said earlier i didn't drink till i was 24 so i kind of had almost a bit of a delayed growth in some ways in, in the sense that you know i was doing all the things that i should have been doing in my late teens in very my in my late 20s for instance because you know i was too focused on sort of changing the world and everything else in my sort of early 20s onwards so you know I had a bit of a different sort of path you know journey really to a lot of people that I know but like I say you know I can't think of anybody that has not had some sort of issue and particularly Brighton because you know it's a very hedonistic city to be fair you know people don't come here to settle down it's one of those places and I think there are a handful of different places around the country I think Liverpool was no different where I grew up and finally, Sam, for anyone listening to this pod and might be living with an eating disorder, an addiction or struggling with their mental health, given what you've been through, what message or advice would you give them from your experience? Do you know, it sort of cringes when I ask this question because there's so many different things that I want to say and then there's things that, you know, you feel you ought to say. You know, I think for me, it's, it's about sort of being very truthful and honest with yourself, I think, because, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, talk about it and tell people about what you're experiencing. But I think actually before you even do that, I think it's really important to have those conversations with yourself first. And that's easier said than done. Um, so it's a bit like me with the alcohol addiction thing. I think there was just no way when I got sort of diagnosed, so to speak, and had that first detox and relapse. There was no way I was going to tell anybody about it. Why on earth would I tell people about it? But yet I was very open about talking about all my historic stuff. You know, I was being at conferences and doing media Appearances on a very regular basis but the very current issues that I wasn't able to I mean I look back on that period it's just because I wasn't at a point of being able to sort of not just aware of what I was going through but be able to truly begin to understand it let alone accept it and I think you do have to go through that process you know within yourself first before you can actually begin to sort of tell the world and be very open about all these the issues that you might be experiencing so I think it's that that I think is really important and I think to write in my book, which I'm doing at the moment, you know, I think I'm realising how, you know, I was in a totally different place, all different points of that journey. So the savage I can say, really, but, you know, I think it's that just sort of making sure that, you know, you're sort of 
kind of aware of what it is you're going through and like I say for a lot of people that might not even be aware of what they're going through particularly with um you know mental health diagnosis for instance you know like ptsd or cpd and the rest of it you know it, it, it can take a while before you can begin to sort of really grasp and be able to sort of like I say sort of comprehend the enormity of what these these sort of illnesses actually are and how they sort of impact on you and etc We talked about your journey, Sam, and since you've been open about your story, you've become a mental health advocate in your own right. How did this journey start and who was the first person you told about your story or or perhaps the first article you wrote and, and what impact did that have on you when it was published and perhaps the feedback you got? I mean, um, I've been around, I think it's safe to say, for a long time um, because, you know, I started sort of my advocacy journey. I don't think we even called it that then, around about the age of 18. And um, basically I was involved in two different projects voluntarily sorry the voluntary capacity um for lgbt young people down here in brighton called all sorts of youth project and another project for mental health called experience in mind which was part of mind and uh the ymca at that point and it was quite interesting that the second project because you know it's at a time when mental health was really not being spoken about it really was not in the mainstream as it were you know so it was completely different back then when i first started because the idea of talking about self-harm just horrified people you know schizophrenia and voices for instance another subject that we talked quite a lot about you know it's just people just couldn't get their head around it and of course that was all sort of pre-time to change if you remember you know that whole campaign where we had celebrities sort of talking about and i remember that sort of coming through a few years after we started sort of doing what we were doing and that was quite groundbreaking quite revolutionary so it was a, like i say a completely different time period and what we did is we had to go to uh, different sort of youth settings of some sort in, and speak to the staff and sometimes the, the young people about mental health issues, um, everything ranging from eating disorders, self-harm, psychosis, all of it. And um, we all had experience, experience in any of those different subjects that, you know, we, we were asked to talk about. So in my early, early days, you know, it was also before social media. This is the other weird thing, you know, I tend to forget, you know, it makes me feel like 100 years old about it. But, you know, it really is before Facebook, before Twitter, you know, all, and before the days where people could actually create platforms for themselves. You know, I think in those days, you know, to really have a platform, you have to be part of an organisation or some sort of group. Whereas these days, anybody can have a platform. I think that sort of, like I say, I think it was quite interesting sort of looking back on that. And like I say, it just really progressed from there and I set up. Um, an organisation of myself about men with eating disorders over a 10-year period and of course along the way you know I've done so many things like you know speaking at events and conferences you know more than I can to count everything ranging from the International Eating Disorders Conference to the Royal College of Psychiatrists you know I spoke in Italy a few years ago for a Think Different conference there so you know I did all of that non-stop for about 10 years I practically lived in a suitcase really in hotels for a while um, and grew to hate it after a while but then you know I just needed a break from it but you know I did all sorts of things and actually learned an incredible amount about being an advocate probably like I say in the times when you know I think a lot of people were just starting out really I think there's a lot of people now that I recognize that you know started around the same time as me and obviously lots of people like yourself that come through since and I think it's quite good that there's a real sort of community now because like I say in the early days I don't think there was so much of a community but with the lack of social media perhaps there was it just weren't talking the same way we are now so yeah it's all quite um felt quite groundbreaking quite revolutionary in many ways so i quite enjoyed that well it certainly sounds like you were one of the trailblazers sam well i don't want to call myself that but you know i think that me and many others you know what i mean like i say it's just a totally different time period um because of the way you know social media in particular blogging podcasting all of that sort of sort of crazy sort of uh ways in which anybody can have a platform 
Folk say. So I think, you know, I'm quite glad to sort of been part of it in the time when that's all been really happening. There's certainly not that many eating disorder advocates out there, Sam. There's certainly a few. You're one of them. Um, friend of the pod, uh, Hope Virgo is another really great one. Um, and to be honest, there's probably not a lot of male eating disorder advocates out there either. The ones that are out there are doing absolutely amazing work. Um, so I'm sure you you must get, you know, people responding to your, your, your social media um, posts or you might get people asking you, at, you know, conferences or things that you've spoken at who are from men or women who are struggling themselves. You know, how do you how do you cope with that and, and, and the pressure and responsibility that comes with it as well? Because it's certainly something that I I definitely struggled with at the start. I'm certainly getting better at it, but I, I definitely had to learn how to put up those walls and those boundaries and stuff like that. Again, you know, without sort of blowing me on trumpet, but I say, you know, I think I was probably one of the early people to talk about men with eating disorders. And at the time, when I spoke about it, it was about 13 years ago, you know, I worked with fixers who were then ITV fixers. Um, and I was one of the very early projects, you know, had an idea. The idea was that, you know, anybody had an idea about something they've experienced, any issue under the phone, quite literally. And they wanted to do some sort of project that involved media to change, you know, just one person's life was the sort of the contract. Uh, uh, applied to them I think it was in 2008 I think and um, yeah and it, it took off quite quickly it was called Men's Disorders 2 um, you know I was doing sort of Radio 1 and Five Live and Sun newspaper and all of it you know in quite a you know short sort of period of time so it kind of got thrown out there quite literally so and it was quite overwhelming and probably when I think about it now probably did have much more of an impact on me than probably than I'd ever realised until much later on probably about 10 years later on when I found myself alcohol dependent, because, you know, it was sort of quite a, um, a, a tricky sort of thing to sort of keep up with, as it were. I always felt like I was catching up with myself. But I think when I look about it now, I kind of realised, because I started very, very young, I don't think I'd quite really been able to sort of explore who I was as a person just yet. Um, and I think um, sort of like when I hit about 30, I suddenly thought, you know, I've done all these incredible, amazing things. And, yeah, I've had some incredible life experiences that a lot of people probably would be to some people's envy perhaps but you know I kind of thought who am I what am I doing and all those sort of poignant sort of questions that we ask ourselves at such different points and so yeah so I think for me I think going back to whatever the question was I've just forgotten but yeah I think when I started you know it was kind of um like I say I think you know I realized that I wasn't sort of sorted or had it all sort of you know I haven't worked it all out yet or any of those things quite the opposite in fact so this is why I'm quite glad over the past two years I've had a bit of a break from all of it really um, I just kind of feel like I'm doing a bit of this and that, which kind of suits me right now, um, rather than having to sort of, and I think, you know, just doing more does not mean having a bigger impact or any of those things. There's so many things that I've learned really just from that experience alone, just from being an advocate um, and all the things that involve. Because like I say, you know, I think it can be very sort of exhausting, it can lead to burnout, it can sort of in many ways sort of impact on you all sorts of ways that you don't realise until much later on. So like I say, I was kind of, you know, just sort of just highly aware of that now, I guess. And just finally on this topic, Sam, you've obviously mentioned in fleeting remarks about the book. Is that something that you're able to briefly chat about, perhaps give us event exclusive? Yes, I'm writing a book. I've been threatening to do this for years. <laughs> I don't say it just in case I suddenly change my mind. But yes, I'm writing a book. Um, because, you know, I feel like for you, you know, I've written lots of articles and I always kind of feel that, you know, I kind of just, it feels like to me writing those articles is like writing your to-do list or something. Do you know what I mean? It just kind of feels quite simple and quite straightforward, but it never really sort of feels that it covers the things that I really want to say. And of course, you know, like a lot of people, you know, 
we all have stories, but none of it all kind of makes sense really until you tell the story um, and those experiences and the learning from those experiences most importantly as well. So essentially that's what I'm doing. And it is focused on um, wire coal addiction and trauma or traumas really in a focused way in the book. So I'm not really talking about eating disorders, I'm not talking about childhood or any of those things too much. It's just kind of really the past five years because I think just on that alone, I've learned a mega amount and also realize that a lot of people are going through that right now and services are diabolical so you know having to navigate yourself through that is is not easy by any means and just a complete minefield so the book is essentially on that really so it's in a very focused way but covers a lot of ground and it is called smashed so and um that you know in many ways you know the story fits the title because you know i remember sort of thinking of the title when i was in detoxes back in November and I said to Claire who we spoke about earlier I said what about smashed and I think she thought I was joking at the time um so you know it's just the idea that you know it's it, you know it's not just about you know the, the obvious drinking reference but it's also the collateral damage that trauma can cause that all the you know drinking self-medicates for so that was the idea of the title so yes the book is on its way don't ask me when but it is on its way The next topic, Sam, is one that's come up loads of on loads of pods as a tool which has helped my guests with their mental health. It certainly helped me, and that is exercise. And the gym is definitely something we share as a great self-care tool. I'm sure it probably had a, a big effect on us when it when they closed. Um, when did you get into exercise and the gym, and, and what impact does it have on your mental health, Sam? I've always been into exercise. I mean, I don't really remember, you know, I mean, in my early sort of late teens early 20s you know it was running and I did run a few marathons and things like that got a bit bored of it and then I started going to the gym probably about when I was 24 25 I think and um, got really into it because I think you know the thing with me if I you know some people might say that you know it's an obsession but I think it more as a discipline actually um, because you know I think what I've learned as the years have gone on when I've been going to the gym you know I tend not to be disciplined just at the gym but also with eating so obviously my history of eating sort of but also not just disciplined in those areas, but disciplined in all areas of my life, really. And often I said pretty recently, you know, in recent sort of years, it's either been drinking or the gym. So in brief periods of sobriety, you know, I've kind of used the gym as the alternate sort of coping mechanism, if you like, the healthy sort of one. Um, so I think for me, gym has been very key and very fundamental. And as you've mentioned, during the period of the lockdown, yes, it was an almighty test, I think, so to say, initially at least, you know, like the gyms being closed just seemed like, just completely sort of incomprehensible really how that happening you know gym's got closed so you know it has been quite a test like so i've been exercising at home you know which is feels like nothing in comparison of what i do at the gym but you know at least it's something um and like the period of the lockdown you know i keep thinking it's only temporary so the gyms will open a bit they are will be open very soon so yeah i think gym for me i think it's been very sort of a bit of a central focus really in terms of my recovery just because of historically it's always enabled me like i say to be very disciplined in all areas and i don't go to the gym just for vanity or aesthetics and all that sort of side to it it's actually really you know everything else other than that really but like i say i've always done very well i mean the thing with me if i really focus on something i tend to excel at it so i think you know the gym is a very sort of good outlet whilst i'm not working at the moment working per se in the conventional sense so yeah it's just i don't know it's just one of those things that if it works it works and for me gym does and what feeling or sensation does exercise or giving or lifting weights give you you know is it is it cathartic euphoric or like you said just a way to structure your routine more 
all of those reasons, I think in reality, I don't think it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do enjoy it. I mean, it is a hobby, obviously, as well. So, and I do quite enjoy sort of working towards lifting high, heavier weights. You know, I think at the point, you know, I was sort of just before the gym closed, you know, doing extremely well. I think I've beaten all my sort of expectations, really, in that respect. So, I think there is certain sort of, I like the fact that it's, it's kind of like goal setting as well. And I think that's how my brain works. If I say, like, with the book, for instance, I'm going to write 2,000 words this weekend. You know, I don't write just 2,000 very good words. You know, I write 2,500 words. Do you know what I mean? I think there's always something about having goals and sort of being very clear about that. I think, for me, works tremendously well. So I've always sort of been a bit like that, really. Um, so, you know, I think with the gym, um, it's just another sort of way of sort of, you know, like I say, getting all that sense of relief for stress, anxiety, but also just sort of for general well-being and just to really escape as well sometimes. I think actually I have the best ideas when I'm at the gym. And often, you know, before the, the lockdown, you know, I go to the gym like uh, very late at night to the early hours in the morning because it's only over the road. And um, it was good because I used to, when I, at that point, you know, I was in the very early stages of my book, for instance, and I got the best ideas there. So, you know, it's there's, there's so many reasons why I think the gym has been um, very helpful and beneficial for me. And just finally on this topic, Sam, why do you think it's important for people living with mental health conditions or just for your mental health generally to find these hobbies or tools that can help us with our mental health? Well, we all have mental health, don't we? So I think it's really important for all of us, not just for physical, but also mental health to sort of keep ourselves active. And of course, that's not just physically, but also mentally active. And of course, it doesn't mean having to sort of uh, going to the gym and sort of for an hour and a half every day so it can be all sorts of things I think it's one of the great things about lockdown so I think people that haven't really sort of considered exercise particularly before or perhaps dipped in and out of it you know suddenly taking up running or walking and doing things that they can do on their own that doesn't involve people so I think in a way I think we've kind of understood that exercise actually is well hopefully we've understood that exercise is part of means part of all of our lives really to get healthy in every respect and um you know, I think actually it's very good for mental health. And I think if I didn't exercise, you know, chances are, you know, I'd be in a state, I think. And like I say, during the lockdown, keeping ex- doing exercise at home as a temporary measure has sort of just helped keep me in check in that respect. And fortunately, things have still kept on track throughout that period somehow. Um, so, yeah, I think for me, can't stress it enough. You know, exercise is something you should consider and do. Our final topic of conversation, Sam, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, is a general natter about our mental health. So firstly, circumstances including or excluding at the moment, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? Well, I think at the moment, I think my mental health is probably the best it's been for a long time, actually. Um, and I say that slightly hesitantly because, you know, obviously I think I've had periods of complete total instability and crisis. Um, you know, I've been in hospital quite a few times in recent years, so I always sort of say that quite anxiously and quite nervously. As I say, but you know, I think generally speaking, it's all going quite well. And I think, you know, I think obviously having the detox in November sort of has really helped because, of course, there's no question that the alcohol in particular exacerbates and compounds sort of mental health in terms of mental ill health. So I think as time has gone on, you know, having done it for real, if you like, this time the whole surprise thing that has helped. So I think I've got quite a lot of pride in that now um, because I've learned so much as well. But also because I've been going through sort of trauma therapy in fairly recent times which is something i sort of sort of did my initiated myself um not through the mental health team because it was a, not that long ago they were saying we don't think you're stable enough Sam, for that just yet and i kind of thought actually i think i might well be and um so that is sort of paying off um 
and that's despite the fact it's been during the lockdown as well so i think that's sort of helping sort of just externalize all the different sort of backlog of traumas that i've sort of built up over the years and it's certainly been 34 i think there's quite a bit of a backlog so you know i, I kind of doing a bit of combination of all of those things really sort of the, the detox not keeping very active in the you know that that recovery community really um in that respect but also the therapy but also the fact that you know i'm on meds you know i've no shame in saying that i'm on quite a lot of meds now um which seems to be working quite tremendously actually i think i've been very fortunate that you know the psychiatrist that i have at mental health community team you know he's suggested things and it works without any side effects so i think as time has gone on you know things are finally sort of falling into place and for about two years it really wasn't you know it was, you know a year ago it was just just about managing every day with multiple sort of crisis points at uh, crisis situations at different points so totally different story to how things were but you know obviously i don't take that for granted i'm not complacent but quietly confident that things should continue hopefully and doing the book and various other things that keeps me occupied that's like work but it hasn't got the full responsibility of it being so sort of you know what just out to be full responsibility at this stage sort of helps me sort of be able to sort of keep that structure that routine but also just something do something that's worthwhile and positive and the rest of it really so i think yeah so things are like i say after two years of complete chaos sort of falling into place now and what triggers do you think you have that affect your mental health? Um, obviously, you've been on this journey for, for of, of, of um, alcohol addiction recovery for five years, but you've been doing mental health advocacy for much longer than much longer than that. You know, have you figured them all out yet? Do you think? And what triggers do you think you can tell with the listeners? Oh no, no, <laughs> no! I don't even pretend that you know. I often say I don't know what the answers are because I don't know the questions are. You know, it's kind of that sort of. No, I mean, I, I think. I think I've got a good idea of what the main triggers are and um, you know and I think actually uh, the good thing is I think when you know what your triggers are you can sort of plan for them prepare for them if or when they actually happen which they do um, so I think that I've kind of done the best I can really and I think with people around me support you know like Claire and other people but you know I think it's also the unpredictable sort of things that I think are obviously quite difficult like the lockdown being a, a significant one you know it just felt like it turned everything upside down at the beginning but then, you know, I somehow went through it, like we all had to, and sort of make the best of it and the rest of it. So, you know, I think it's sort of just constantly sort of being in check, really. It's like this, this podcast, you know, just checking in. You know what I mean? It's just doing that with myself every day and just sort of making sure that there's nothing that's sort of festering, as it were, sort of bubbling underneath the surface that could sort of peak its sort of ugly head and sort of catch me off guard at different points. So it's really sort of just really sort of constantly sort of working on that now and not playing ignorant to things because i think probably before especially when i was drinking you know i just played ignorant to absolutely everything really sort of burying my head under the sand sort of approach and hoping it would just miraculously go away and you know that never worked so it's sort of just doing things very differently i think to the days when i was drinking and just sort of constantly keeping it under review really and it's great that you know i've got i am under the mental health team because you know i've got an occupational therapist who's my practitioner so she's very good with these sorts of things and you know it sort of helps sort of have the people around me that I've got now so it's always just constantly reviewing and checking in and everything else really sort of just keep things on track and just feeling a little bit more confident that things are on track you know it's sort of I think like I say I'm always nervous about saying that but just thinking actually things are going well so that is okay you know it's not <laughs> I think when I've you know for two years I've 
constant crisis managing you always kind of feel a bit sort of you know on guard but you know i think i've realized that actually you, you, know, you can relax and just focus on doing things that you know obviously very valuable valuable for me to do like the books or doing this podcast even you know things that sort of just um enable me to sort of get some sort of worth and value and sort of just kind of keep doing what i've always done really mm. And outside of exercise, what tools and methods do you use to help your mental health, Sam? And which ones have worked? Maybe which ones that haven't? Writing, I think. Um, probably the top of it. I mean, it's like probably about two years ago when I had the uh, second detox. I remember that I did go for four months of sobriety sort of very quietly, really. I didn't tell anybody, really. And um, the two things that sort of emerged in that period was the gym, because, as I've just mentioned, because I've not gone to the gym for a long time. Drink always won over the gym, as it were. And um, the other thing that sort of emerged was writing. I hadn't really done any writing for a long time, really, apart from reports and grant bids and things like that when I was working. So, you know, it was quite good to sort of get back to that. And that's kind of where the book sort of came from, really, in all the various different articles and blogs I've written. So, you know, I think that um, has been a major one, really, especially during the lockdown and probably just moving forward, actually, beyond the lockdown. I think writing is going to be a very good outlet for me to sort of just sort of externalise really all those different thoughts and ideas and experiences. Um, so rather than just sitting in there in your head forever, um, festering away. Um, so I think that is the two things really have been really a godsend really for me is, is the gym and writing. Toxic masculinity is something that we try and break down a lot on this pod, Sam, and, and you certainly experienced a lot of it when you were bullied in school. I was bullied in school and I experienced a lot of it. What does toxic masculinity mean to you in a definition way? And what examples have you experienced in your life that you can share with the listeners, whether that's through homophobia, like you've said previously on the pod, or or just or maybe perhaps toxic masculinity within the gay community, if that's a thing? It's interesting, so I'm not really even sure what, what what we think you know what we think we know about what the definition is of toxic masculinity i kind of wonder is it one of the things that we've kind of just invented almost <laughs> i'm not really sure because you know i think you know probably the obvious answer is kind of coming back down to expectations of masculine sort of i you know ideals i guess um and of course that is something i definitely experienced because you know i did not fulfill the stereotype at all whatsoever the expectations around what a man is supposed to be growing up but to be quite frank i had no intentions of fulfilling fulfilling that stereotype you have no interest in that so I think I've always sort of had a real sort of strong sense of who I am to some extent you know quite early on but in terms of toxic masculinity I think you know it's one of those things that I think we've still got a long way to go in terms of just you know understanding sort of gender you know as a spectrum not just treated as binary and I think you know I think there's so much more there's so much more but still always kind of think that it's a bit like I always say it's a lot, a lot of things. It feels like a lot has happened in recent years to sort of get us talking and um, and discussing these issues, but actually sort of to enable that sort of, um, I can't really think, sort of next sort of stage, as it were, in terms of the uh, our, you know, proper understanding of these issues, to sort of make changes towards how we think about it and how we actually, what we do and what we say day to day. There's a long way to go. I don't know if I answered that question, <laughs> but, you know, it's one of those things I think, it's, toxic masculinity is one of those things that I kind of don't really think about because I don't really think it actually exists in the way that we think it does. I think it's one of those things that we've kind of invented and actually I think what does it really mean is really the question. I also try and talk a lot about this idea of positive masculinity as well, Sam, on this pod. I know this is a bit of going to be a difficult question, but how would you define positive masculinity and what qualities should a man exude, do you think, to be described as positively masculine? Just be you, 
um, I think that kind of the first thing and don't really have to sort of think about what, what it means to be masculine. I don't know why we have to sort of be positively masculine. <laughs> if you're just being you, then surely that is being positively masculine in a way. So in my head, this is what I mean. It's sort of quite strange really sort of this whole idea that we, we need to even think about, you know, being masculine or feminine. And again, it's one of those things that I think over the years, I think perhaps it's because, you know, I'm gay and, and, and have gone on that journey is in, in many ways I don't really see these sort of gender breakdowns do you know what I mean especially in the LGBT community you know everyone's sort of non-binary or trans and you know gender questioning and fluid and everything I think I've probably got so used to that now that I almost sort of banished the idea that gender is in terms of binary gender sort of exists I think you know and just where I live in Kemptown I'm sure you, you know Kemptown having said here you know you have to walk down the street you know what I mean so you see it every day. So I think maybe I, I do appreciate that Brighton is a bit of a bubble, to be fair. So, you know what I mean? Perhaps, you know, it's a bit different from the rest of the UK in that respect, in the world, um, in terms of... But I just, I don't know, for some strange reason, I just don't sort of see see these, like I say, gender breakdowns and definitions and the rest of it, what they mean. You know, in my head, they're just, you know, irrelevant if you're just being an individual. So I'm more for individualism, as it were, you know, this idea that, you know, we are just individuals and we identify and relate to certain things, but it doesn't mean to say that's just who we are. You know what I mean? It's like me, I always sort of hesitate to call myself a gay man because I think, well, what's that got to do with anything? You know what I mean? So it's kind of mm, just that, you know, I just hesitate to refer myself as a gay man, but then I could extend that to sort of things like I don't like calling myself as a, recovering bulimic or recovering alcoholic because it suggests that it's an identity and I don't think of it as an identity I think it's an aspect or a part of my identity but it's not the entirety of who I am by any means. I think that's a really great answer that you gave Sam and there's no right or wrong answer to that and people have given lots of different um, answers on it uh, I think one thing that has come up which which you did say is this idea of self-confidence though and this idea of accepting of accepting who you are and being and being comfortable in your own skin which I think has been said by loads of men um who have come on the pod. Just as a final uh, question, Sam, why do you think historically men have struggled to express how they're feeling um, or about their mental health or just feelings in general? You know, why do you think it's important that we as men um, open up and try to normalise the conversation around mental health as you've done for so many years? And do you think society has taught us that it's not okay for us to show vulnerability or have we as men done it to ourselves, do you think? I think it's a combination of both of those. I think historically, but also kind of think the one thing that I've said for years now, because obviously I've worked very specifically with uh, men with disorders, so men's mental health because of that. But I think, you know, I think it's safe to say, I think that men do talk about things in a slightly different way, I think, to say that women do, generally speaking. I know we're not talking about gender breakdowns and stereotypes, but I think if you're going to go historically, I think it's always been that. And I think these days, I think we are seeing... A, a breakdown really of masculinity and what that means and what that involves and how we identify with it it's in all sorts of different ways but I think it does come down to expectation and, and sometimes I actually feel like saying perhaps men do to, do talk but do, with it, do we actually listen to what men are saying maybe you know having to turn that around because I always get a bit bored of this whole idea oh men don't talk well they do actually and um, I think it's do people listen and I think that's the thing that you know it's a very provocative sort of you know statement to make but I do think a lot of the time I think it's more that actually than men not talking uh, and like I say men do talk about things in a very particular way um, so men might talk about things as very matters fact rather than sort of emotions and feelings necessarily so you know it, it's again it's about that whole thing around listening I think because actually I think if we 
think a bit more along those lines, I think actually might think quite differently about the conversations that we do have as men, but also as men with other men, you know what I mean? And um, I think, yeah, I think that's all I have to say on that one, really. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Sam for being my special guest on this episode's pod. As always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. Remember, if you like what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it, or for being very, very generous, write us a review on iTunes. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent.